We are in Matthew chapter 2. The whole chapter is about the events that take place still in the first year of Jesus' life, the visit of the Magi. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how, how clear it is. What an amazing thing to see your sovereignty and how you worked all these things together and then the obedience of this young couple that simply did what you instructed them to do. And you protected your only begotten son and them through all these events. But what an amazing thing to see that Jesus was not only to be the king of the Jews, but you orchestrated to announce even to the people in Jerusalem that he was to be the king of kings. Now, Lord, I pray you give us understanding. And then, Lord, lift our heads, encourage the hearts of believers to trust us, to trust you, Lord, with all of their lives. And, Lord, those that don't know you, that today might be the day of their salvation when they learn to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is an amazing story. When we left this young couple last week, they were with the shepherds. The shepherds had come after watching their flocks, after seeing the angels, and they said, let us even go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass. And they came, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And they told Mary and Joseph all the things that had happened, and then they left and went back to their work. And for a short time, Mary and Joseph stayed in the stable. We don't know how long. I said in the first service that I think probably um, Joseph had a sister named Ruth. Probably, just a guess. I'm, I'm thinking every everybody needs a sister named Ruth, my or an, an, uh, an aunt named Ruth. And uh, my boys had an aunt, aunt named Ruth, and she's a very kind and wise person. And an aunt, whoever the aunt was, probably decided we're not leaving that baby down in the stable. Whatever Uncle Reuben, whatever, you know, instruction he had was overruled and the baby was moved to the house. Or Joseph was able to get some work and rent a house, but there's more room now and so the baby is moved into the house. And so when we see these, uh, these scenes, the manger scenes where you have the shepherds and all the animals, then you have the camels and the three kings of Orient are, just realize the kings weren't there yet and they weren't kings the Magi are king makers. They weren't kings. There's been a lot of folklore and just, frankly, superstition that's grown up around the Magi. The Bible doesn't say there were three of them. There were three gifts they brought, and those are representative. But the Magi, who were they? The Magi were an ancient tribe that goes clear back, we think, to the time of Abraham. They were a priestly tribe. They were monotheistic. They worshiped one God. Even before Israel worshiped one God, I'm not saying they worshiped the true God, but they worshiped one God. They had animal sacrifices. So in a lot of ways, they were kind of like the Hebrew people. And they had fire in their worship. And they also were astronomers, and they were also astrologers, and they had some cultic practices they did. And eventually, we get the word magician from them, but they weren't magicians. They were just a tribe called magi. And they were very, very uh, studious. And so eventually they became the king makers. Now, when you talk about the wisdom of the Magi, that's basically the law of the Medes and the Persians. And over the centuries, these became a very powerful tribe of people so that no Persian ruled 
without the affirmation of the Magi. Very powerful. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, it wasn't three. There were probably thousands. I want you to get the picture. This is a powerful, powerful announcement from Gentiles that the king has been born. Now, if you remember, Daniel was taken into captivity and they lived in the Fertile Crush and the Magi. That's where they were from. That's where Abraham was from originally. And they were taken into captivity back to be a part of the kingdom of Babylon. And the king there was King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar brings these young men in. They were uh, of the royal line. Daniel was somewhere in the royal line, uh, upper echelon of, of uh, Jews. And they take the very best, and they take them back there, and they become a part of a special uh, caliber of people, the wise men. So they could count on them for all of their accounting, for teaching, for science. But eventually, they become a part of the Magi. And remember what happened. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And they can't interpret it. And kings are, in those days are good about that. And so they say, well, just tell us the dream. He said, no, I'm tired of you guys. You guys are always making stuff up. Tell what we're going to do. You tell me what the dream is. And then you tell me what it means. And they said, well, who can do that? So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just wipe all of you out and make your uh, houses a pile of dung. And Daniel says, why are we in such a haste here? Daniel goes with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they go and they spend some time with the Lord. And the Lord gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream. Remember that dream is of a statue of the kingdom of the earth. And they go back and they tell Nebuchadnezzar, you old king, you're the first kingdom. That's the head of gold, the, king, the kingdom of Babylon. And next comes uh, Medo-Persia and the, the chest and the the arms of silver, and then comes the midriff of bronze and the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay mixed, the kingdoms of the world. And the king gets so excited about that, he uh, decides to make a statue so everybody can worship him, the head of gold. And we think that Daniel must have been someplace on the king's business because he's not included, but Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they have this big uh, gathering. Remember, from God's vision interpreted He's going to make it about him. And so uh, he says, whoever doesn't worship is going to get thrown in the, uh, in the fiery furnace. And so the music is played and everybody bows except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now listen, he's invested a lot of money in these guys. And so he brings them forward and he says, now listen, maybe you guys didn't understand, but um, we're going to play the music again and give you the chance because, again, these are valuable to him. He's invested a lot of time and money that these, these wise people might give advice to the kingdom. And these young men, probably still teenagers, say, hey, king, we don't have to be careful about this. Know this. We understand the threat. If we don't bow down, we'll be thrown in the fiery furnace. And our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but if he doesn't know this, we will not bow down well you know the story they play the music they don't bow down he gets so angry he throws them in the fiery furnace and then he sees that they're not killed he heated it up so hot that the men that threw him in were not were were killed by the by the heat 
But inside he looks and he sees not three but four. And one, it says, is like a God. I think the Lord Jesus in pre-incarnate form came down and spent some time with those three young men there in the fiery furnace. So the king, he's a little encouraged about this. He goes up to the furnace, hey, fellas, uh, why don't you come out of there? And they walk and there's not even the smell of fire on their clothes. Only the ropes that they were bound with were burned. And the king still does not submit himself to God. But you know in the next chapter, chapter 4, Daniel gives him a warning. He has a dream. And he tells the king, O king, live forever. Here's what's going to happen to you, but you need to submit yourself to God. The king doesn't. And he loses his mind and becomes like an animal for a period of time. And then at the end of that chapter is the testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most ruthful, power, ruthless, powerful leaders that ever lived that comes to faith in God. Now, if you read Daniel further, God gives all kinds of information to Daniel about what's going to happen. But by chapter 5, Daniel is called the chief of the Magi. He becomes the number one person in these group of people that give advice to the king. And that's why they have such a unique position. That's why when the Medes and the Persians take over and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is destroyed, he's still an influence because the Magi are very valuable. They're very powerful. They're called the kingmakers. No Persian ruler rules without the affirmation of these Magi. Now, Daniel teaches and has influence. Now, there's a King Darius. You've heard of him before. He decided somewhere in his reign that they would have one religion in their kingdom, and, and that would be the, the worship, uh, the religion of Zoroastrianism. And so that's also kind of monotheistic uh, religion. And so the Magi, wanting to stay in power, said, well, we can just adopt that. So they kind of chameleon in. And so now there's three different kinds of religion because, number one, there's the religion, the old religion of the ancient Magi. There's now the worship of Zoroaster, however you say that. But also, there's the worship of one true God. Because when the children of Israel go back to the land, those two tribes can go back to the land, they're reestablished in the land, many of the Jews stay there. Daniel stays there. But he teaches the Old Testament. And he teaches the things that he learned. This is the amazing part. Almost 500 years before Jesus is born, God in his sovereignty puts Daniel as the chief magi and he teaches the Old Testament so that there are believers that are waiting for the Messiah. So when they can tell the times, now how is that? Remember Daniel's 70 weeks that God said he's going to get his years of disobedience back from his children. Every seven years, there was supposed to be a sabbatical. Well, they let the land rest, and they didn't do anything. They just trusted God. God said, I'll bless you in the six years, so that the seventh year, you can just give that whole year over to worship and rest. And then every 50th year, be a year of jubilee, all the land would go back to the original families that God had carved out when he put them into the land. So if you were going to get a loan on your land, it was only good until the year of Jubilee because you were getting it back, right? It wasn't worth as much. But they just didn't practice that. Why? Because just like people today, you look at your check, God says, give the first tenth to me, and you say, well, ten is better than 
nine. So why don't I just keep all, and I'll just give what I feel like once in a while. And again, I believe that the tithe is just a beginning point in grace giving. We ought to give as God gives to us. But it's a good place to start, a good place to learn. But in those days, it was the law. Now, it wasn't just 10%. Under the law, there was 10% of the first fruits, 10% of the whole. And every third year, another 10% for the poor of the land. So it works out to about 23 and a third percent a year, right? And that was their government. But when they looked, they said, well, we can make more money just planning seven years rather than six. And 10 is better than nine. So we'll just do our own thing. You come to the book of Malachi, and what does Malachi say? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. They hadn't been doing that. And they hadn't been doing their sacrifices. And they said, oh, it's such a weariness. Oh, such a weariness. And he gets, he, he, Malachi challenged with all those things. And he said, unless you hurt, turn the hearts of the father back to the children's and your hearts to God, I'm kind of going to come and smite you with a curse. And then we have 400 silent years. But Daniel had come and said, God's going to get all those years back. 490 years of disobedience, of those years of jubilee that they were supposed to take off, those sabbatical years, and they refused to do it. God says, I'm going to take them back. And so if you look what he says in the 69th year, it says Messiah is going to be cut off. And that happens the very day that Jesus comes in and the triumphal entry. And that's why he says, if only you had known this your day. This was the day the Lord had made for them to recognize their king. But what did they do? They rejected him. They said, crucify him. We have one king and that is Caesar. And they rejected their Lord and Savior. Well, these that have been instructed who are now Gentile believers in the Chaldean kingdom can look at the calendar and go, oh, it's getting close. What does it say there in verse 1? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, know what's happened? They've been there a while. They've been there long enough. If you look in Luke chapter 2, after the shepherds went away, eventually they got back in the house. And When it came time for the sacrifice of her purification after having a, a baby boy, she went up and they brought the sacrifice of a poor couple. If they had been wealthy at that point, if If they'd already gotten the gifts from the Magi, they'd have brought a lamb. But instead, they brought the sacrifice of poor people, which was doves. And remember in the temple who they met? They met Simeon and Anna, who God prepared in their heart and said, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah come. And Simeon takes the baby Jesus up in his arms and blesses God for allowing him to live long enough to see the salvation of Israel. And all that happened, and guess what? Nobody's paying attention. And I suppose Simeon and Anna, who also came and rejoiced, told everybody they could, but who's listening to the old people, right? Not much. They go back down to Bethlehem and continue, and they probably just wonder, well, I guess we're going to live in Bethlehem now. Life is probably too tough. Back in Nazareth, we'll just stay in Bethlehem. And then comes the Magi. Now, the Magi saw this star. That's another really important part of what's going on here. What is that star? Some people I've seen done study well. It's a certain constellation happened. I don't know about that. But the star that led them, we believe, must have been like the Shekinah glory. Remember in the Old Testament? Shekinah glory came down and it rested over the tabernacle. And when the Shekinah glory lifted up, it was a 
pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it will lift it up. They packed up their tents and they followed it. They weren't wandering around lost in the wilderness. They were going where the pillar of fire directed them. That was the Shekinah glory. In Matthew 24, the Bible says there's going to be a sign appear in the sky when Jesus returns. We believe again that's going to be the Shekinah glory of Jesus as a sign that everybody can see he's coming back. We believe that's the best explanation of what happened here because it led the Magi, and first it led them west. They're believers, so they know it's the king of the Jews, the capital city, Jerusalem, must be in Jerusalem. And so they show up. And what, is this, what do they say? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. And why have they come? And we have come to worship him. Why? Because they are believers. I think they probably thought, could it be? They're the kingmakers. They're the ones that affirm, yes, this is the king. Could it be? Now, they've had wars. There's been all these wars, three wars between Rome and the Parthian kingdom. And these three wars, Rome is a little frustrated, and they're kind of afraid of the, these eastern kingdoms because they're a long ways from home, and they got across a great desert to get there, and they just never have decisive battles. They're able to push uh, the Parthians back out of Palestine, but there's always this fear, and there's peace. That's why they can come in at this time. But listen, this is causing Herod to shake in his boots. Now, Herod is a guy. He's another part of this deal. Herod started out as his father had been given authority to, to rule. He was an Edomite, called it Edomian at that time. He wasn't Jewish, but he's from the area. It's probably not that bad. His father ruled in this area, and then he, by, I guess, inheritance, was able to rise, and he calls himself the king of the Jews. He tries to practice Judaism. In the beginning, he has some victories. He's able to kind of chase some of the robber bands out, and so in the beginning, he's pretty good ruler and he also comes up with a really good tax system and that's why Rome that's what Rome wants they want their taxes and they want peace so he's the one that put the system together of you know you buy a franchise and so you're a tax collector and then you get as much money out of people and you you make Rome rich and you make yourself rich too that's what Matthew was the tax collector before he began to follow Christ and he built a lot of things. Those that are going to Israel, you're going to see these great, amazing stones. He took a small, the small temple mount and just expanded the mountain. It's amazing. They have these stones that are as big as buses. We don't know how he moved them, but he was a great engineer. He's a great builder. But the older he got, the more fearful he got that someone was going to take over. He married 10 wives. One of those wives he married was Mary Amney. She was of the Maccabean people. And so he was trying to identify himself as the ruler of the Jews, so he marries her. Later, he feels jealous, so he trumps up some charges and have her, has her murdered, then mourns for her the rest of his, of his life. He has three or four of his own sons killed because he's afraid they're going to take over. And so he, if anybody uh, uh, threatens him at all, if he perceives he's threatened, people die. That's why it says when Jerusalem was troubled, or when he was troubled, all Jerusalem gets troubled with him because if he's troubled, somebody's going to die. And the older he got, the more paranoid he got. In fact, by the time Jesus is born, Herod's only going to live another year. And he becomes such a ruthless, wicked man that he decides somebody should mourn when he dies. So he makes an order. I believe he's up at, uh, 
his port city trying to get some health. And so he sends an order back to Jerusalem and says, when I die, you gather all the people, because it's getting close, gather uh, a bunch of really important people in Jerusalem, put them in jail, and when I die, kill them all so that somebody will weep because I've died. He was wicked. And you can see how he'd be threatened if all of a sudden these kingmakers show up and they say, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the Messiah born? We have come to worship him. He could have said, uh, that's me. But it's not, is he? He knows he's not the king of the Jews. And so he listens. And remember, this huge entourage of thousands come. They have a whole army with them. And they're not riding on camels. They're riding on Persian horses. It must have been a tremendous, impressive sight. They have this huge entourage, not only for an army, but also for the cooks and everything you have to bring along so you can survive on this long journey. These magi had to have made a decision, and this costs a lot of money just to get there and a lot of time. And so they show up, they set up camp, and then they send the magi and the entourage, those that were guarding them, in to see the king. Now, this is impressive. As I did my study, we find that uh, Josephus likes to uh, speak evangelistically and say Jerusalem's a lot bigger than it really was. And by best guess, we can say Jerusalem was probably people-wise about the size of Laramie. About 30,000 people lived there. So when you got two or 3,000 people showing up, setting up camp, everybody in towns, because they didn't, they didn't take up as much space as we take up in Laramie. Everybody in town knows something's going on, and it's a foreign army. Now, the interesting part, God and his sovereignty has arranged so that Herod's army is out of town. The Romans are off doing something else, and they don't, they're not at war there, so they don't expect anything to happen. And these are not there to get war. They're there to worship. Although, we might think that these kingmakers, these believers, might be thinking, is this the one? Is this the one that will finally be the king of kings? that will rule the earth, because that's what the prophecy said. The stone cut out of the mountains without hands comes down and grinds all the other kingdoms and fills up the whole earth. That is the one. It's just not yet. But they're coming to worship as believers. So Herod, this is not a big deal. It's not in the darkness of night. They're there. They have to make formal application, I'm sure, and they come in and they visit Herod. And their question is, where's, where's been born the king of the Jews? Because they're thinking they've come all the way from the east. This is a big deal. They know he's already been born. Where is he? We want to worship him. He's here. Now, every Jewish person would know that when they knew history, but Herod didn't know it. So he makes a big deal and he calls a big group of people together, the priests and the Levites and all the people uh, the important people of Jerusalem to come in. He says, now where is it? They have a question. Where is the king of the Jews to be born? Because they're following the star. It led them to Jerusalem. Now when you think of all the bad things that are going to happen because they showed up, think, why did God in his sovereignty, why didn't he just lead them to Bethlehem? Later the star leads them to Bethlehem. You know why? I believe in God's mercy and his sovereignty. He's giving Jerusalem the opportunity. He's giving Herod an opportunity to worship, to submit. This is a big deal. Instead, they give him the answer. He's to be born, the Bible says he's to be born 
in Bethlehem, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of, of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then, verse 7, the big meeting's over. Everybody's starting to leave. The, the priests exit. Everybody leaves. And then Herod says, oh, just a minute. I have, I have, a, I have a, something I want to tell you guys uh, secretly. He says, listen, I want you to go down and search diligently, find out where the king is. Oh, I'm just so excited about this because I also want to come and worship him. But he was lying. All Herod cared about was eliminating any competition and he knew as the Jews, there's always this story that a Messiah is going to come one day and deliver them and set up his kingdom. He's going to eliminate that. He's going to deal with God. God may have said so, but Herod's who Herod is, and he will determine who's going to live and who's not going to live and who's going to rule in his time. And so the Magi, they don't know any different. They say, oh, that's great. So they go down and they begin to head towards Bethlehem. They know which direction Bethlehem is. And then the Shekinah glory appears again and leads them, it says, to the house where the child was, was living at the time. Now, stars don't move around like that. That's why we believe that God's own glory showed up to lead these believers exactly to the place. And what does it say there? This is an amazing verse. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, if it's three guys between Jerusalem and Bethlehem someplace, woohoo, there it is. But it isn't three people. It's an entourage of thousands of army that have been traveling a long ways, and all of a sudden they see the glory of God again. I think the worship between Jerusalem and Bethlehem that night was amazing. And I believe the sound could have carried all the way back to Jerusalem and Herod probably heard it being up there and he probably shook in his boots even more than he had before. Because this army could rise up and remove him. Then it says they followed this star to the house in which he's living, not the stable, after coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. The idea is there, they lay flat on the ground. These kingmakers, these powerful, powerful men were believers, and they flat out on the ground and worshipped Jesus, the king. Then they gave him gifts worthy of a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, three gifts. Now the gold is said is, is the sign of royalty, and so they gave him gold, and I don't think it was like, here's three pieces. I think they brought a tet. Te they, they, they enriched Mary and Joseph. The frankincense speaks of his, of his deity because that's what the priests burned when they, and it's a sign of the prayers of God's people going up to him. And then myrrh is the sign of his manhood because he has to live on this earth, and so myrrh was used in making perfumes to kind of cover up the smells of the day. But whatever the signs were, it enriched the family. John MacArthur points out, Jesus was not born to a poor family. 
You say, well, hold it now. The Bible says he became poor that we might become rich. Well, remember, he was God. So any rich person on this earth is poor compared to God. We don't think they were rich people, but a couple things happened. Now they have money for the journey because I think they both, the Magi and their big encampment, they go to sleep that night. And Joseph prepares to go to sleep. And I don't think either one of them are sleeping very long and they both have a dream. The dream to the Magi is you don't go back to Herod because he's seeking to kill this child. And Joseph has a dream. And the dream to Joseph is you get up and you get out of town because Herod is seeking to kill this child and you're going to go to Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, it says a little later. So that the scripture might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now they have money for the journey. I don't know. Maybe they even talked to the to the uh, the magi. Maybe they sent them with an entourage down there to make sure they were protected, or they joined a caravan. But they had money enough to survive. And Jesus grew up in a family that was a trades family. They had business. They they built. They were craftsmen. They call him a carpenter. Actually, he's probably a a hewer of stones because that's they had more stones than trees to build with in those days. And so they had the money to be able to, to go. And so right away, Herod figures out, hey, that entourage is not coming back, and he is enraged. So he sends his soldiers who are now back down to kill every male child that's under two years old in Bethlehem. Now, have you seen the pictures I have uh, growing up and the Bible predicted this, that this would happen. But it wasn't thousands of children were killed. I mean, Bethlehem's probably a, a city at that time of, of twelve or 1,500 people. And so theologians say probably, you know, at the most 25 males were killed. But I don't care how many were killed. This is an awful, awful thing that happened to Bethlehem. These children, these innocent children... John MacArthur says these are the first Christian martyrs. I think some of the first people that Jesus greeted when he went back to heaven were some of those babies that are now in heaven. But they're wiped out, just showing you once again the wickedness of Herod. And Mary and Joseph in the dream, the angel says to, to Joseph, you go down to Egypt and you stay there until God tells you to move. And so that's exactly what he did. You know, God takes care of all the amazing things. 500 years before, Daniel becomes chief of the Magi so that he might instruct them in the Old Testament, the word of God and these prophecies so that there are believers through the centuries that believe so that when it comes, God is able to use them to make an announcement about not only the king of the Jews, but the king of kings. And they bring rich gifts so that the, the young couple is taken care of until they're told to go back. Now then an angel has, uh, Herod dies and the angel shows up again and tells Joseph, Joseph, you take the child back to Israel. But when he gets there, he sees that Archelaus, the son of Herod, is reigning, and he's afraid, so God gives him more instruction. He shows up again. He says, no, you don't have to go back to Bethlehem. You go back to Nazareth, which shows they probably had planned on leaving Nazareth permanently. They had moved to Bethlehem. As rough as they got treated when they first got there, now that the town was back to its size after all of the uh, 
uh, Augustus ruled that everyone should go to the town of his birth or his lineage. Now the crowds are back down. They're probably just heading back there and then thought, well, hold it. If we get there, maybe Archelaus is looking for, for the baby Jesus to kill him too, but God gives him more instruction. No, you go to Galilee. So they go back to Nazareth, and it says there, that it might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. God has done all of this. But you know, in all of that, there are three group, groups of people that are watching that. First of all, there are those that are in Jerusalem. They've seen the announcement, the possibility. These, these people saw a supernatural star. People in Jerusalem didn't see it because it's gone now. They, they show up, they're directed to Jerusalem, but they have the announcement that something amazing has happened. The Messiah has been born. Maybe with some of them has gotten around because Simeon and Anna, they have told some people. But as far as we know, nobody else even took the time to go down and find out if it was the true. None, none of the leaders, they were busy. They had, busy, they had many things to do. Probably the, they'd make a big deal about it also because Herod was not just uninterested. He was rebellious. He would not have God to rule over him. He was going to change God's prophecy if need be. He was going to kill this child. Then there's a third group, the Gentiles, who believe God's word, sacrifice their time and their treasure to go and worship the king of kings. The question is, where are you this morning? We've seen all prophecy fulfilled. The Bible says he's coming back one day. And Jesus gave the warnings in Matthew 24 and 25 when he talked about his return that people that say they know the Lord will be sleeping when he comes. They won't be ready. Are you ready? Do you know Jesus this morning? Father, we thank you for your word.